When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you make. Our websites, Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. So I don't know if you know my history as an energy freak. I am so into the future of energy, and it goes way back to the 1970s. When I had a, actually starting 1980, I had a three-wheel limited production vehicle that weighed 580 pounds called the Freeway. It ran on a Tecumseh farm engine and was designed to get 100 miles per gallon. And that vehicle was probably unsafe beyond like five miles an hour, but it was really, um, really an unusual pioneering kind of thing. And my first involvement with solar was in 1979 with uh, an experimental program with a utility where we took a rudimentary solar panel and used 40-gallon uh, oil drums to generate heat, passive heat, for people in homes where they were too poor to afford the cost of heating their home. So this is something I've been about for generations now is the energy transformation happening in the United States. And I've been an electric, well, I got my first hybrid in year 2000, and I've driven electric for the last nine years. And I firmly believe that the vehicle fleet of the United States is going to turn over to eventually 100% electric, but in a meaningful amount much quicker than we may realize in the U.S. right now. You know, worldwide, about 5% of vehicles being purchased each month are electric. In the United States, I think it's only around 2%, but we're getting very close to the tipping point where the actual purchase price without any government incentives or subsidies, will be cheaper for an electric vehicle than a gas engine one. Uh, Tesla had their much overhyped battery day recently where they talk about the things that they're planning and how they're going to get the costs down. And one of the things that was headlined is that a $25,000 electric vehicle will be available in about three years' time. But with Tesla, uh, you believe it when you see it, but generally uh, Elon Musk tends to overpromise, but not underdeliver, overpromise on timeline. But the trend line is clear that the cost of batteries down 85% in 10 years, and the price curve keeps bending all around the world. And so... Once you have an electric vehicle, 
I can tell you it's much, much, much more fun to drive than a gas engine vehicle. The range getting better and better. The new uh, Tesla high-end model goes 500 miles on a charge, uh, or will go 500 miles on a charge. I guess that's early next year. Right now, the best they have is 400 miles a charge. And so the range anxiety people have had will go away. But here's the big thing. Although the focus has been on mostly what Tesla's done and what others are chasing behind them with passenger vehicles, the big marketplace and the big effect on people's wallets is going to be with businesses that are going to electrify their entire fleets. You're going to see that um, Amazon in particular is going to be way out front with their massive fleet of delivery vehicles going 100% electric. UPS and FedEx are going to trail some, but then no-name trucking companies are going to overwhelmingly migrate to electric, which is going to reduce the cost of distribution in the United States because the electric vehicles are so much cheaper to run than the gas engine ones. And this is an important thing for our vehicle market with GM, Ford, and Chrysler. They've got to get moving with this because foreign automakers are pouring tens of billions of dollars each into electrifying their fleets because they know that's where everything's going. And I want our American automobile manufacturing to be strong and remain strong. And we've got to be innovators. We've got to be moving ahead of the rest of the world, not trailing them. It's time for your questions. You've posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternate. And Kim, who's your first question from? This is from Julia in Connecticut. Julia says, I heard you talk recently about life insurance. My husband and I purchased a 20-year level term insurance policy when our kids were young. They're now 23 and 21, graduated from college, still living with us, but neither one of them has student loans. Our term policy ends in a few years, and we're wondering if you think that we need a new term policy. We have enough saved to cover funeral expenses, and we're on track for retirement. So, first of all, you were really early in the game. Having a level term policy 20 years ago? Nobody even knew what that term meant 20 years ago. I'm very, very um, impressed with your financial wisdom. As far as whether you need to replace that policy with a new one depends not on how you put the question about your on-track saving for retirement, but if only one of you was still around, would the other have enough money to live on? And if the answer's yes, if you'd still be okay, then you don't have a strong need to replace that insurance policy. If you're not worried about providing uh, income or support to your now adult children, then that would eliminate a need. So when the 20 years runs out, there may or may not be a need for a replacement. And it really is you sitting down and really thinking through if one of you does pass away, 
Is the other still okay financially? If the answer to that is yes, you don't need one, and you're not worried about the kids, you don't need one. If the answer is no to either of those questions, then you do want to replace that policy. Joel? Clark Linda in New Hampshire says, I've got a question about the dreaded timeshare. Unfortunately, my sister owns not one, but two. She's in her mid-60s and her husband is in his mid-70s. My fear is that I'll inherit these in her will, which I definitely do not want. I want to broach the subject with her, but I'm not quite sure how to do that. Most importantly, what should she do with those timeshares? How should they be dealt with in an estate to make sure no one gets stuck with them? Okay, so a uh, suggestion that has come in before that uh, came in from a lawyer who does wills, estates, and trusts is, first, don't be reluctant about making sure she knows you don't want it. You don't want either timeshare. And second, that maybe she uh, put in the will that they can go to her favorite charity. The charity then will likely refuse the timeshares, and then they just essentially at that point go into the ether. It's important to designate who or what is going to receive them. You just don't want them to be you or another relative because timeshares have a negative value, not a positive. So you may be wondering why you would even designate a charity to receive them. Again, the charity as an entity is going to refuse them and it eliminates the possibility of a relative having to deal with the timeshare company saying, not me, not me, by having designated an organization to receive them. Hopefully it removes anybody in the family from any chain of responsibility. Please have that conversation soon. Kim? Elena in Delaware says, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. I'd like to turn it into a side hustle. Would you recommend registering this podcast as a business? And what should I consider? I had to purchase a microphone and there was cost involved to start a website. Are these expenses something that I could claim? Any guidance is tremendously appreciated. Well, I wish you great success with your coming podcast. And you don't have to be an incorporated entity. You don't have to be an LLC. You don't have to do an S-Corp or uh, anything like that when you're starting a business as a sole proprietor. And yes, the expenses are uh, legitimate expenses that you'll be able to use against income. You'll have to demonstrate income from the podcast in order to do so. Otherwise, the expenses are looked at as hobby expenses instead of business expenses. And if your podcast really does take off or you're dealing with any controversial topics, then there may be a different reason for you to set up a limited liability company, an LLC, or an S-Corp, most likely an LLC. But for now, just keep good records of your expenses, and I wish you the best building up your audience. Joel? Clark Mark in New York says, hello, thanks for the great advice throughout the years. Uh, we have surpassed the 20% threshold on the value of our home and understand that we're entitled to a refund of a portion of the PMI we've been paying over the last 10 years. The mortgage company hasn't been helpful, though. Can you help us navigate this? So you're not eligible for the money back from PMI. You're eligible to not have PMI collected moving forward. 
once you have the necessary threshold of equity, there's a procedure with the mortgage company to uh, discontinue having to pay PMI. And there's uh, different formulas based on when your loan was taken out. And typically, it, this time, this amount of time from when the real estate bust, you probably have substantial equity in the home that you can establish by using an appraiser that is on your lender's approved appraiser list. And that appraisal uh, filed with your lender is what leads to the removal of private mortgage insurance moving forward. I do want to give a key distinction, though, that's very important. A lot of people with FHA loans would like to remove their equivalent kind of product called MIP, and that you cannot remove because you have the equity like you can with a traditional conventional loan. It's not unusual that the people you talk to at customer no service at a mortgage lender will pretend they don't know anything about removing PMI. Go back to your original loan documents. You'll find the key phrases and clauses you need to rely on, and then you notify the lender that you wish to proceed with having their list of approved appraisers and pay the money for that and get rid of PMI moving forward. Kim? Scott in Florida says, how do you go about finding the cheapest credit card processing company? Our business does 100% of the credit card transactions over the phone, so we don't even need a card reader. So what I would do is compare the cost with Costco Wholesale's merchant processing with Sam's Club's merchant processing versus Square and see which is going to be cheaper based on your average ticket and your average volume to see which is your best deal. Jordan joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jordan. Hey, Clark. How are you? Good. Congratulations, huh? Thank you so much. What do you have, a new boy or girl? It's a boy. All right. Well, how's that been going? Any sleep? Uh, it's been going good, you know, a little lack of sleep, but, you know, we're getting through it, so it's it's going really good so far. He's a great baby. Oh, well, how can I be of service to you? Yeah, so, um, you know, since him, you know, with him being a newborn, um, I just had a question about um, uh, his social security number. Um, so with fraud and identity theft, you know, it's, being so rampant these days, um, how can I protect his social security number from being stolen or used to open a line of credit? So the only thing available to you is something actually that is relatively new, and that's child credit freeze. But it works differently than when we do it as adults. You know, as an adult... Right. You can go online and with minimal hassle and just a few minutes work, you can freeze your credit for as long as you wish. For a minor child, you have to provide a lot of documentation that proves that you have a legal right to do this for your child, and you got to provide all kinds of paperwork that in itself, if somebody was dishonest at a credit bureau, could be mm -hmm. used for identity theft but it's if you're willing to spend the time it's worth it with a newborn or a young child 
to do the child credit freeze and send in that documentation. Right, right. And that that is something that I did look into. Um, and I just, the documents that they ask for, you know, it's birth certificates and, you know, his social security number and, um, you know, all that stuff. So I didn't know if it would be like a good idea to send it through the mail or if there's like another way I can send it to them to where it would be more protected, I guess. Um, you know, I mean, no sending could. it sending it through the mail is okay. Um, okay. You know, there there's obviously theft that goes on through any method of delivery, but mm-hmm. most cases of identity theft are not people intercepting the mail. Okay. And so I I would feel comfortable with you if you're willing to spend the time because the big problem is most parents have not been willing to spend the time that you're yeah. willing to spend. If you'll spend the time, it's worth it because okay. the potential risk of the information being intercepted or misused between you and being received by the credit bureau is so low compared to the enormous benefit of having that credit freeze in place. And again, I wanted to uh, wish you just endless joy with your young son. Thanks for taking time out of your day to join us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you have. Our website's clark.com and clarkdeals.com. And at clark.com, we have a very popular forum called clark.com slash clarkstinks. It's where when you hear me answer a question, give an opinion, give advice, you feel like I missed the mark, gave bad advice, or I'm just plain dumb. And so you post away. Others get to read your post. They can comment on it. They can agree, disagree. And then once a week, producers Kim and Joel go through your posts on Clark Stinks, and we share highlights from the forum with you right here on the show. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. All right, Clark Howard, let's do this. Ready. First up today, quite a few people wrote in about your opinions on telehealth and how you phrase them. So I'm going to read you two different ones that bring up two different points. First up is SL, and he says, I can't believe what you said about doctors on today's show. Insurance companies did not reimburse reimburse telehealth visits until the pandemic, and only then at a reduced rate and only for a certain amount of time. Why should doctors offer telehealth visits if there's no adequate insurance coverage for it? Why are doctors expected to work without adequate compensation? I found your comments to be a big slap in the face to all doctors. Thank you, and I appreciate that post very much. And it is true that insurance companies have too much control on the relationship between doctor and patient. And it's one of the things that leads to the distortion in medical care and how it's provided in the United States. 
You said there was a second one also, right? That's right. And Kay wanted to point out that, Clark, you should really stick to critiquing financial institutions rather than critiquing doctors. I am a physician, and your commentary on telemedicine made doctors out to be green-eyed monsters. I could feel my (laughs) blood pressure rising as you spoke. Like everyone else during this pandemic, the field of medicine has had to come up with ways to continue to provide patient care and connect with patients really need to be seen by medical professionals. Yes, telemedicine has been around for some time, but nothing is as good as physically seeing a patient in person. Instead of making it sound like doctors are doing this all just to make a buck, you should be giving accolades to doctors who are trying to deliver great patient care through a virtual visit. It is not as easy as you may think. I appreciate your post as well. And, you know, it's interesting with those two is that they were approaching the same thing with very different things that set them off. And the thing is, medicine has been slower to change than other fields and how they interact with customers, with patients. And I want to go back to something you just read, Kim, and it is absolutely essential that you go to your doctor visits, particularly if it's very important clinically for you to be evaluated in person. We have had a huge number of unnecessary deaths in the United States where even people in the midst of a medical event are refusing to go to the hospital or go see their doctor because they're so worried they're going to get coronavirus, they're not getting care for a clear current event like a a heart event or something like that Um, there are many ways that doctors can successfully consult and treat a patient and the telehealth works for some things and does not for others and i appreciate one thing in particular the care and concern both doctors clearly have for their patients joel Clark, there were uh, a few posts this week about Social Security and your comments recently as well. So uh, let's let's take a few of those. First one from message board user Pico Pirate says, Clark and others strongly advise waiting until age 70 before claiming Social Security. Clark at least considers interest rates in this decision. However, I ran the numbers and found that if your savings and investments earn more than 7.68%, then it's always better to claim Social Security as early as possible. Even at 6%, you still need to live into your 90s before delaying makes sense. Yes, most savings accounts have much lower interest rates, but the stock market average is much higher, and that is the number you should be using when determining if it's worth delaying Social Security or not. Assume for the moment that your retirement savings covers all living expenses. Uh, it would have to if you plan delaying social, collecting Social Security. So if you collect it, then you could simply reinvest that money. Uh, Since you would not need that money until after age 70, that gives you at least eight years before you have to pull the funds out. That's far enough out that you could put it in growth funds. And if you did, you'd likely earn closer to 10%. Thank you for that post. And I'm going with consumer behavior here because most people at or near Social Security age, early Social Security age of 62, are not investing heavily in the stock market like you are so for most people the the numbers you gave are not relevant in their lives they may not have any money invested in index funds stocks mutual funds whatever 
And if you in your own situation have figured out the math that for you it's a superior choice to take Social Security at an age earlier than 70, go for it. One other angle, though, I would mention if someone is uh, generating higher income, like someone who has a stock portfolio, you also have a tax angle you have to look at with Social Security till your normal full retirement age that becomes a factor claiming before uh, people retiring now 66 years and I guess two months is the full retirement age for people who are hitting that point today. Kim? Oh, I'm sorry, Joel, you have more Social Security. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. Eleanor also uh, wrote in, she said, a strategy that Clark mentioned in a recent podcast began stinking back in 2012. Now it's just putrid. Clark mentioned that early Social Security payments could be paid back in lump sum interest-free uh, before full retirement age to reset the clock, so to speak. This used to be true, and it's what I plan to do. However, the rule changed, allowing repayment only before the end of the first year early payments are received. I found out about this in January 2013 after starting early payments in June 2012, and now I'm stuck with it forever. Okay, thank you, because I did not clarify that when I talked before. You have a short window to say, oops, and pay back what you've received now, where it used to be something that you could take your time with, and I apologize for not being clear on that when I talked about that possibility yeah last one here too this one's from dave he says i bought maximize my social security program uh based on your advice it was a waste of money we had done the same thing on paper it didn't tell us anything we didn't already know i want my 40 dollars back that's the second person recently who has uh expressed unhappiness with my recommendation to spend the 40 dollars on maximize my social security and as came up recently I want to point out there are a number of free calculation tools available, including one from Social Security itself. Maximize My Social Security becomes very valuable for people who have a not-run-of-the-mill situation. And there are a lot more of us who have not-run-of-the-mill situations than we might imagine, including if we're married and our spouse is not of similar age to us, that starts to affect the calculations when it will actually be best to initially claim Social Security and would make spending the $40 worth doing because the amount of money at risk making the wrong decision with Social Security can be quite large. Kim? Tracy says, Clark, recently someone asked you about their American Airlines Advantage miles expiring at the end of the year. The person was not comfortable traveling at this time, but was looking for a way to keep their mileage account active, therefore not losing all of their accumulated miles. You suggested that they use some of those miles to book travel for next year in order to generate account activity and keep the rest of the miles from expiring. Were you even listening when the person said they were not comfortable traveling? A far simpler answer would be to go to the American Advantage shopping site portal and place a few small online orders with one of the participating companies. Even a purchase of a few dollars will will earn miles that'll extend expiration for another 18 months. That is a great suggestion. I didn't like my answer right after I gave it. To that question and so thank you for uh, correcting me on that because I did give a not very thoughtful answer to that question. Joel? 
Clark, this one's from Noel. He says, please explain, Clark. Seven in 10 Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. It seems like hearing so many stories about people with four rentals, all with lots of equity or others with $250,000 in their Roth and that they've got two other accounts uh, that the stories we're hearing on the show do not reflect the bulk of Americans, especially in these times. Uh, 70% appreciate and respect their success. But if I could suggest keeping those calls to a minimum and focusing more on the 70%, that are not in that position. I just feel like if you've got a credit score in the 800s and have 300,000 in an IRA, why are you calling Clark? Uh, But more importantly, why is Clark putting those calls on the air when the vast majority of his audience can't relate? Thank you for that post. And you, it's like you've been in meetings that Kim, Joel, and I have had because the questions that we pose are a reflection of what people are posting for us. And It is true that overall in the economy, there is great economic distress right now. And so for us, we try as hard as we can to get a mix of questions and topics on the show. And there are people that are doing well who have very legitimate questions about how to continue to succeed financially and there are others that are really struggling even just trying to get food on the table and we try to get that mix right in the content on the show and there are times maybe that we don't get that mix right but we're doing the best we can under a time of high financial stress in the U.S. you know as I've talked about prior we are in what economists have labeled the K where we have a significant portion of Americans, roughly about a third, that are doing better financially than they were before coronavirus, and then roughly two-thirds that are having a uh, moderately difficult to extremely difficult time. And so it's a situation where we're serving two diametrically opposite listeners at the same time. Kim? Kevin says, Clark, I love you, but I need to speak to Mr. Howard for a moment. Dear Mr. Howard, the only thing that you do consistently that bugs me is when you assume the gender of a listener's spouse. I know it may be a habit of living in a heteronormative world, but it might discourage some members of your audience from continuing to listen to your excellent advice or submitting questions to you and your team. Thanks for all you do. And thank you for that post and uh, getting the gender tone right, referring to a spouse or a partner, is something that that I do have a blind spot on, and I apologize for that, and I will try to be more mindful of it. And I appreciate all your posts. When there's something you feel that I have offended you or I've missed the mark, please go to Clark.com slash ClarkStinks. And let me know. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ben is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hi, Clark. How are you today? Great. So, Ben, you're on a great trend line getting rid of debt in your life. Tell me about that. Well, uh, using it as a gift, as you mentioned a few weeks before, of uh, just trying to get out of credit card debt and and, uh, make my money go to me and not other people. Great. Tell me what you've accomplished so far and how long it's taken you. So probably over the past six months, we've, we've paid down about $20,000 in credit card debt with probably about another 10 to 12 remaining. Um, That's unbelievable. Not, not You've done that in six months? Well, I moved some funds around that was sitting around on and, and uh, just been concentrating on uh, putting things where it belongs. Wow. Great. So what's your plan for the last 10 to 12? So my concern is I have, um, I was given some life insurance policies when I was born from my, both from my parents and from my grandfather. Uh, they're both whole life insurances. One of them pays dividends. And I was uh, curious about maybe closing out the policy and taking the dividend, the, the cash value of the account and putting it towards our debt. So- uh, I do have additional, a term life policy as well. Uh, but my concern is maybe I could use these smaller policies in case something would happen to me financial in emergency where I couldn't pay my term life policy. So uh, when you've had a whole life policy for a significant period of time, odds are that it's actually by this point beneficial to you. So it takes a long, long time, normally 16 or more years for a whole life policy to basically even get to break even. You've had these policies a lot longer than that, so they're working for you, but they're not large enough to actually be a substantial benefit to a survivor. Is that right? They're, they're the child kind of policies are like 25000 or something? Correct. So there is an alternative, though, to looking at uh, cashing either of them in. What does a loan cost from these policies? Because if they were issued a long time ago, a loan may be extremely low interest rates from one of these. I I was looking at at that option. Um, As soon as they told me it was a loan, I didn't want to focus on paying money back to somebody else. Actually, it can be a good idea. Let me tell you why. Because with the life insurance policy, you may have, for an old one, you may have a loan interest rate of two or three percent maybe at most five percent and the interest rate on your credit cards is at what uh it's fairly low i think it's about five five percent oh if it's that low then just leave the life insurance policies as they are particularly a dividend earning one you don't want to throw that out if you've actually got that low an interest rate on your credit card just keep doing what you're doing and stay with your path of being determined to pay it off and don't add the complexity in your life of borrowing against one of the policies. But I would not cash them in either, 
even though they're smaller amounts, those old whole life policies are at a point now where finally they have a good return on them that they have not had most of your life. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.